You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. My first obligation this morning is to keep faith with you as as well as I can because I'm mindful of the fact that you are more or less captive. I could thank you for showing up, but of all the hackneyed, old-time, foolish things to say, I won't burden you with it. But I do take a special pleasure in noticing that we have some people who've come this morning who are volunteers. So I want to particularly thank a little band of volunteers that have come out. I'm trying to fight down the thought that they didn't know who was speaking, and they're too well-mannered to walk out now. (laughs) And that obligation I have to keep faith with you takes the form of finding a topic upon which I believe myself competent to speak, which eliminates a good number of topics. (laughs) Wide range, encyclopedic range. For instance, popular music. Unless, of course, you want to hear about that big hit of 1963, Puff the Magic Dragon. Or how about 1970, the year I came, the number one hit that year was I'll Be There by, get this, the Jackson Five. (laughs) And I vaguely remember that in the 1990s, the most popular group, when you were all babies, those of you who are alive at all, (laughs) was Pearl Jam. (laughs) But the truth is, I have to face facts, you have to face facts, if it's not already obvious, it will be in about 10 seconds. And that is, I am out of date, (laughs) out of style. I can't deny it. I had to ask, and I do this every fall, I had to ask this morning my Western Civ class if young people still say cool. (laughs) So many words I have had to say goodbye to in in my attempts over the years to be relevant. Bad is gone. Um, neat has perished. I have bad news for you. Awesome and amazing will also end up on the linguistic trash heap. Do you still say sweet? I like sweet. I like that one. I do. Sports are another topic. The sports fan in our family is my sweetie, my dear Martha. She, talk about cat fans. Wildcat fans, out of staters. For a while, for a couple of years, we had access to University of Kentucky basketball seats. And I went, gladly, because she got such pleasure out of it. For my part, I was able to conclude uh, when the cats had lost by noticing that on the scoreboard, the number associated with the other team was larger. (laughs) I also noticed that instead of cheering, The cat fans were moping. Another clue. (laughs) But uh, there are topics on which I would venture with some confidence. One of them is history. (laughs) No, 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 spare me your false applaud. I know it's in your hearts. (laughs) But I will will, will spare you. My my poor captives, I will spare you. I will not, I'll be merciful. But then it came to me like a bright light. I'm also competent to talk about religion. 
in fact, I am an expert on religion. Now, I don't want to make reference to the fallacy of Protestantism that everybody is his or her own little portable personal mobile seminary. And nor have I ever been to seminary myself. But what I have done over 40 years is sit through how many, who can know, how many chapels, how many faculty retreats, uh, how many fora, how many Bible studies. And if that knowledge were not enough, if that were not sufficient to warrant my claim of knowing about religion, I spent $4 of my own money two weeks ago at an outlet mall to acquire the complete idiot's guide to evangelical Christianity. <laughs> I am now an expert. <laughs> I am all over the fundamental great truths of Christianity. And one of these fundamental great truths of Christianity is that we don't always want to hear the fundamental great truths of Christianity. Sometimes we want to hear the simple truths of Christianity or uh, maybe put more accurately, the great fundamental truths of Christianity put simply. At our faculty meeting uh, last week, just a week ago today, uh, Dr. Kalaga, our provost, uh, I said, it was a, said a number of things, of course, in connection with the business, but one thing stuck in my mind. He said, the more abstract we get, the less relevant. Too true. The more abstract we, we don't always want to hear about the theological development of the concept of scriptural holiness in the abstract. We don't always want to hear how people practiced saintliness in a monastery a thousand years ago. Sometimes we want to know, we want to be guided by the Spirit and by the Word, how we are supposed to live in our ordinary, everyday little lives. We don't always want to know the ultimate end of our existence. Sometimes we want to know what the next stage is, the next step. We don't always want to know the bottom line. Sometimes we want to know the line we're on, or maybe at a stretch, the line just below that. We don't always want to know about the final purposes. We don't always want to know about destiny. Sometimes we want to know answers to the questions that beset us every day. At least I do. For instance, can we really be saved? Can we really be saved from sin? We don't always want to know what the Holy Spirit and the Bible and the collected wisdom of the ages have to say about whether we should be missionaries to Bekuana land or whether we should invest ourselves in translating the scriptures into Waziristani. Sometimes we want to know what the Bible says about studying for a Spanish test. Sometimes we want to know what the Holy Spirit says, what the collective wisdom of the ages tell us about the steady, persistent, and almost invincible fact of sexuality. Sometimes we want to know, is it spiritual to get tired of living in one room with the same person and eating most of your meals in the same place with the same people? However nice the cafeteria is, and a cafeteria is nice. I, I had lunch there yesterday. Really, It really is nice. Sometimes we want to know what the Bible says about knowing something really clever and nasty to say. I mean really clever, memorably clever. <laughs> you would be immortalized in the dorm. <laughs> really clever and nasty to say and not saying it. What does the Spirit say when you have studied for an exam, hoped for an A minus, expected a B plus? Little margin of error there for yourself. And in fact, got a C minus. 
What does the Spirit say? What does the Word tell us when our varsity teams, which are now reinforced by our experienced returning veterans and a host of really stellar new talent in players and in coaches, nevertheless, our teams do not win all their games. What does the Spirit tell us when we discover, for the third time this week, the practically endless possibilities for seeing and hearing the wrong thing on YouTube? What does the Bible say when you do not get into graduate school, or at least not into the graduate school you wanted to? You don't get into the law school or the medical school you wanted to. You, you fumble up on the GRE. You, you, do, you, you bomb the medcats. Uh, you run out of money. What, what does the Bible say when you can't stay in college? Never mind grad school. You can't stay in college. What, do, what does the Holy Spirit tell us when you can't get a job? You can't get a summer job you wanted. You can't get the Christmas job you want. You can't get a job at all for months. What does the Bible say about that? Sometimes we are low in our spirits, downcast, discouraged. And the wonderful thing is that when we are low, Christ can bring us up. Sometimes when we start with the small, uh, the particular, uh, the temporary, then the Lord lifts us up to what is grand and what is general and what is immortal. We are not made to start on the top and work down. We are made to start on the bottom and be carried up. If we are willing, we start low, we end up high. So my topic this morning is integrity. Kind of an anticlimax, huh? <laughs> You're thinking, gee, this is a what? A little talk to the business club? A little, little seminar for leadership? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I did not have to look integrity up in the dictionary. I've always thought that it was very odd. Have you ever noticed this? How many pastors say, as a preface to their sermon, the dictionary tells us, I always thought that was very odd. Somebody plans an entire sermon around one word, and he has to look it up in the dictionary first. <laughs> Not me. I know what integrity means. It means completeness. It means wholeness, a sphere and not a disk. Nothing essential missing. That's what integrity means. And what is a Christian with integrity? Or put another way, what is a complete Christian? A complete Christian is one who knows all that is needed and acts upon that belief. All that is essential and acts on that belief. So Christian integrity is a combination of belief and action. What does the complete Christian need to know? Now, I have to draw a little distinction here between uh, need or give you a little, a little discourse on need. When my sweetie and I are shopping, which we do often, and especially as we near the magnetic clearance table, there it is glittering. <laughs> I love to shop. And I will fix my attention on something, the existence of which I was completely ignorant of five seconds before, but now which I have to have. <laughs> and she points out, that we don't need it. And I point out to her, in vain, that need is not the criterion for buying things on a whim. <laughs> but if you think about what you actually need as opposed to what you want, your needs are sharply reduced to very few. And it's about essential fundamental need this morning that I want to talk about. What is necessary? Not desirable, what is necessary. They're the same, but just in a logical sense, what is necessary for a Christian to believe and to do? Libraries, great theological schools, crusades, 
spiritual empires have risen and quarreled and dissolved over the question of what the Christian needs to believe and to do. What the Christian needs to believe and to do. The mind boggles. Historians, are, I'm certain, do not have an exact figure of how many lives have been confused or dismayed or wasted struggling over this question. What is the essential to Christianity? What are the essentials? What does the Christian need to do? The spectacle of a thousand years of spiritual disputation is powerful and depressing, but it's also unnecessary because the answer is actually quite simple. Christian integrity consists of three things. Three things to believe and three things to do. All the great orthodoxies, all the, theolog all the theologies, they can be thrown into a sort of figurative pot, they can be boiled down, the dross boils away and the gold at the bottom. All, all theological discourse can be distilled down to three things. Everything else, everything else is either wrong or unnecessary. Now you understand, of course, that I am committing sort of social suicide, not to name a stronger, more physical danger, which I hope I can forfend by hiding or running. <laughs> but I am committing social suicide with my friends and colleagues in the Bible department, who will from now on snub me. Oh, you thought we were pretty smart, didn't you? <laughs> Leaves us in the large doesn't it? <laughs> but wait, three things to believe and three things to do. And here they are. Trust God, be good, and hope for the best. <laughs> That's it. You thought it was complicated. <laughs> Trust God, be good, hope for the best. Trust God. I'm not going to do what philosophers call unpack the concepts. Trust God. This is a command. We are obliged to obey. 1 John 23, and this is his command to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and this is his law, that we have faith in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. You must have faith that Jesus loves you. You must believe that. That's trusting God. Jesus loves you as much when you are despicable in your own eyes, Genuinely despicable in the eyes of other people. You're actually nasty. <laughs> You're wrong. He loves you just as much then as he does when you are at the very top of your joyful ecstasy. When you are basking in the esteem not only of other people, but yourself. You are happy with yourself. You are in a spiritual high. He loves you just as much when you're in a miserable state as when you're in the happiest state of all. His love is always complete. It is always unconditional and it always lasts, always. This is the God you are trusting. The Father having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. God keeps faith forever. The Bible tells us that his spirit, his spirit is, there's a little sign here. It says, please adjust the mic so it is in front of your mouth. <laughs> which is funny. I thought I should adjust it so it was in front of my ear. The Bible teaches us that his spirit is abroad in the land, breathing on the little embers of yearning that survive in every heart. Um, nobody is born with saving faith 
And the amount of faith that any person has at any given time can vary widely. No one's born with saving faith, and the amount of faith that a person has at any time, or can have at any time, varies widely. For instance, the disciples who were with Jesus all the time, who heard him, saw him, fed on his presence, saw his miracles, they were shaky in their faith most of the time. They ask him. Their faith was so low in Jesus' presence now, their faith was so low occasionally that they had to actually ask him for more. If you have faith enough to ask, then you have faith enough to hope. And if you have faith enough to hope, you have faith enough to be saved. We know from Ephesians um, uh, second chapter that uh, faith is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Well, that's true enough, it is a gift. No question about that. And what does a gift require? Some response. Giving a gift is not a passive operation and accepting a gift is not a passive operation. We are supposed to do something. We are supposed to, as the Bible says, if you are then raised in Christ, Colossians 3, if you are then raised in Christ, reach out for the highest gift of heaven. This is God's command. And our response to a command is to obey. We sang a, a, a beautiful chorus, and this is an opportunity for me to say how grateful I am for the wonderful ministry, the music, uh, the spirituality of Lily and her friends. Really, always a joy to have them in chapel, and I was particularly glad this morning that they could be part of the ministry. I could have just quit after Lily sang and let you go early, and I'd have been a big hero. <laughs> we sang a beautiful chorus. Here I am, Lord, is it I, Lord? I have heard you calling in the night. I will go, Lord, if you lead me. I will hold your people in my heart. Second essential, you have to be good. Trust God, be good. You have to be nice. You have to be nice. Before you set out to evangelize China, start being really nice to each other. It's kind of a breakthrough. You have to be considerate. You have to do your best at whatever you undertake to do. And I'll just say that there was a time 2,000 years ago when that was the whole meaning of integrity, doing your best. And that is a fundamental scriptural principle as well. It's one of the places where the revelation of scripture and classical tradition mesh perfectly. They overlap. They overlap completely. That being good means doing your best. Christian integrity means doing your best. Uh, I, you, need, you must do your best in academics. After all, that's why you're here. That's your primary reason you're here. Surprise, surprise. At great cost to your parents, to yourselves, to your supporters, your friends, your church, great, uh, great uh, cost in, in money, great cost in time, emotional energy, commitment. Now, doing your best does not mean that you will be an academic success as the world understands success. Does not mean that. It also doesn't mean that if you have disappointing grades, that you have failed spiritually or failed in any way, so long as you know you've done your best. Doing your best means just this. Everything you undertake to do in a serious way that you're committed to, everything you're committed to doing, you do with this in mind. You are going to deliver the finished product to God. 200 years ago, a man named John Ruskin wrote a book on architectural history. It's called The Seven Lamps of Architecture. And to study for this, he climbed all over cathedrals, mostly in Italy. He was all gung-ho on Italy. He climbed all over cathedrals in Florence and Milan and places. And in one passage he wrote to praise an anonymous peasant working man who'd lived 500 years earlier. 
And this is what Ruskin said. This man was a true and devout Christian. I have climbed to the top of the cathedral, and I see that at the top of the cathedral, he did exactly the same high quality of work that was done on the bottom of the cathedral. On the bottom of the cathedral, the lords, the aristocrats, the priests could see and praise. At the top of the cathedral, only God could see. A true and devout workman. What I say about academics is true of music. It's true of uh, athletics, of team sports, of individual fitness. It's true of any activity to which you are committed, any activity you undertake to do. And especially it's true if this is an activity in which other people depend on you. It is a scandal, it is a shame when God's people lay before God a performance, uh, an achievement that is inferior to what would be acceptable to uh, accomplished pagans. It is a, it is a, it's a shame and a scandal. Be patient. That's being good. It doesn't matter if you have to wait. It is not significant if you have to wait. If you're not first in line, that does not matter. It's not that it doesn't matter a lot. You have to focus on the big picture. It's not that it doesn't matter a lot. It doesn't matter at all if you have to wait. I know this is a stunner. Be a good listener. Be grateful. All good things come to us from the Father of lights above. We are stewards of everything. We have a claim on nothing. Every good thing in your life is a gift from God or from other people acting in accord with God's wish, God's will for their lives and for you. Be generous. Do not, repeat, do not take up what I think is a heresy, but which is a very common delusion among some Christians who pretend to believe, or maybe they do believe, right along the lines with believing the world is flat. But anyway, I'll give them the... I'll give them the uh, uh, credit that they believe what they're saying. They believe that uh, it, being frugal for its own sake is a virtue. Wrong. Frugality is very often nothing but a disguise for selfishness. Did you know that, and this is a, talk about a scandal and a shame. I have a, a niece in California, and she worked her way through college or through high school. Well, didn't have to work her way through then paid for by the city, but college, she helped to work her way through anyway, as a waitress in some pretty nice restaurants. Did you know any of you waitresses, servers? Oh, not waitresses. Oh, bad. Waiter, waitress. Oh, not, not gender neutral. I'm bad. Servers. <laughs> Those of you with servers will know what I'm saying. Christians have a terrible reputation in restaurants. Did you know that? Because they're cheap. How embarrassing. How awkward. I blush for shame. Do not be cheap. Be generous. This is being good. This is Christian love. This is holiness. This is the lifestyle of worship, which our chaplain shared with us on Wednesday. This is life that is guided by the Spirit and graced by His fruits. There's a new book out by a man named Perichin, Victor Perichin. Turns out this guy is the bereavement counselor for the National Association of Funeral Directors, of all things, which strikes me as a little odd. It seems to me that a funeral director would more or less expect that his clients would be a little depressed. Maybe this parachin tells them at their annual mortician's convention that they need to cheer up, lighten things up a little bit. Well, if he does tell them that, he's been a great success. I have known three funeral directors pretty well in my life, and all three of them were practically a barrel of laughs. A laugh a minute. I mean, you were in stitches being around these guys. So obviously the man is a success, but to return to his book, his book is entitled, and this, how, many, how much of this stuff is being generated and sold, Nine Habits of Effective Christians. But you can save yourself the price of the book if you look in Galatians, the fifth chapter. 
because the nine habits of effective Christians turn out to be the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Christian love, we're still under being good. Christian love does not depend on emotion. There are three ways that a Christian can react to emotion. First, you may indulge it. You may indulge your emotions. The emotions can be the means or the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. It can be your honest, honorable response to a good event in your life. It can be a happy surprise, a relief, a victory, a blessing. If you see someone being happy, be happy for them. Be happy with them. And in the same way, emotion can be the legitimate, honorable response to something that's a, a terrible disappointment, a blow, uh, an injury. If you see somebody weeping, weep with them. The Bible says to rejoice with those that do rejoice and weep with those that weep. But remember always this, that people vary in their capacity for emotion. I could, uh, if I did a survey, I wouldn't be hard pressed to find in this room perhaps a number of people who cannot wander through a Christian bookstore without getting all sniffly over the plaster wall mottos. And in the same way, there are people in this room who can hear and speak of the most moving, the most touching things in the world with all the emotional response you might expect from a concrete garden turtle. <laughs> or you can master your emotions. That is to say, you can get on top of them. Take, take, uh, take temper. The Bible does acknowledge anger, but nowhere in the Bible is there a sanction for temper. In fact, there's not a sanction in the Bible for any sort of passion. And by passion, I don't refer to the sensual at all. I refer to the desire to win, the desire to be on top, the desire to be master of a situation or master of another person or master of an argument. The Bible does warrant or explain or allow for anger, certainly, but not for temper. Or you can ignore your emotions. This is best generally. Ignore your emotions because the extent to which you feel an emotional response to a commandment is unrelated to your obligation to obey it. How you feel about another person, you like them, you don't like them. You don't feel good, you do feel good. How you feel about a situation or another person is in no way related to your obligation to love that person, in no way related. If you are guided by your feelings about other people, you are lost. You are defying the clear mandate of Scripture. Scripture defines love, and our Lord exemplifies this himself, as wanting to do the best for another person, regardless of the cost to yourself. And understand the cost can be very great. The cost can be even open-ended. Look at the story of the Good Samaritan who committed himself. He gave some money to care for the wounded person. And then he pledged to do more if more were needed. He pledged to the innkeeper, well, you take care of this man, and when I come back, when I come back through here, if there's any more expense, I'll pay it. He committed himself in advance to an investment necessary to accomplish the purpose. At no point in the story does he make any reference to, this is my buddy, I'm very fond of him. We shoot baskets together, we pray together, we watch TV together. Mm -mm -mm. Didn't even know, he's a perfect, how could he have liked him? He was a perfect stranger. For, far as we know, the man was unconscious. Couldn't even say anything agreeable. Couldn't even thank the, 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 the kindly Samaritan. God does not require, because God does not expect us to like the people we love. If we do, it's a boon. It's a benefit. It's an extra. And if you think about this, there's not a soul in this room who wants to be helped or encouraged or thanked only by persons who like him or like her. The test of love 
is not feeling. The test of love is obedience. And finally, hope for the best. What is hope? Hope is an expectation of some good, some desirable and at least remotely possible condition. One does not hope ordinarily to have a root canal or to be run over in a mall parking lot <laughs> or to fail a test. A very clever, a very ambitious, a very talented person may hope to be a senator or a CEO or a professional musician or uh, a great soul for God. But one does not hope to be younger. One does not hope to be born to a different set of parents. What is Christian hope? What does the Bible lay before us as the most desirable, imaginable condition, which we do not have a reasonable expectation of obtaining, but an absolute promise that we will obtain? What is that? Christ Jesus. That's what that is. Let me read you the scriptures. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from 1 Peter, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten unto us again a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Colossians 1.27. God has made known to us this glorious mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. These are promises. How blessed are they, Psalm 146, how blessed are they whose hope is in the Lord our God. On Monday, Dr. Gray, our president, said this in a different way, but memorably clear. Our promises are as bright, our future is as bright as the promises of God. Your future is as bright as the promises of God. Now I'm going to conclude. Trust God. If you have faith enough to hope, you have faith enough to be saved. If you have faith enough to hope, you have faith enough to be saved from the power of sin. Be good. Obey the command to love. It does not matter how you feel about it. Be guided by feeling and you are lost. Hope for the best. In Jesus Christ, our hope and glory. Uh, Socrates said that we should be what we wish to seem. Be what you want to appear in the eyes of the person you admire the most in the world. It doesn't matter if you are too new here to have that kind of a connection, that kind of an acquaintance yet. It doesn't even matter if you are so lacking in self-awareness that there is nobody in the world whose opinion you value more than you value your own. Because the approval of admirable people is only a way station for the Christian. What we seek is approval in the eyes of God. Tell me what to do to be pure in the all-seeing eye. We sang that wonderful chorus, and with this I'll close. Here am I, is it I, Lord? I have heard you calling in the night. Person, alone, no other stimuli, dark, alone, with only God. I have heard you calling in the night. I will go, Lord, if you send me. I will hold your people in my heart.